0: Maybe may be seated. Kids, you are dismissed. As the kids leave, let me just remind you to heed the instructions that Jen gave earlier, okay? Like, seriously, please don't show up knocking and saying, why didn't anybody tell me? And don't let this be an excuse to just watch a movie at 10 o'clock. We are just, we'll just be about seven minutes away. Uh, if you need details, please don't hesitate. Reach out to any of us, missional community group leaders, uh, folks that are on staff, reach out to somebody. Please spread the word, whether it's social media, let people know that we're gonna be changing spots because we really don't want anybody to be left behind. So with that, uh, we are kicking off uh, our new series uh, called Stewarding Privilege. And uh, as I was preparing for this, I kept thinking, what's the best way To 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 deal with a topic that is so heavy and so loaded, and all of the uh, all of the things that pop in your head, I I would imagine when you hear this. Uh, And so, what I went to is uh, my own personal experience when I went into the military. I went in the military uh, the day after I turned 21. That's how that's how I party. I go to the military, and that just shows you how exciting I was. And so I went, uh, and I'll never forget. I, I didn't really have an idea of what to expect. Going away to basic training, going away to San Antonio, Texas. I didn't know uh, what would what would happen. I didn't know what would be expected of me. Uh, I just knew that that I needed to pack to go. I'm like, well, they're going to give me a lot. Do I need to bring that much? I don't know. And so I overpacked. I I found somehow I found the largest duffel bag I've ever seen. I've never seen one bigger. It was you could put a, a small human being in this thing carry them anywhere you wanted and go undetected because it was just that big. And I packed it with tons of stuff. And I remember lugging it through the airport. I remember getting to San Antonio, Texas. And I remember getting put into what we call flights and kind of in this training flight. And here's what would happen. You would get there and they, your TIs, your your drill instructors, they would go and inspect the contents of whatever you brought. And so there were people who brought all kinds of things. Some of those things shan't be mentioned on this Lord's Day. (laughs) Uh, what people thought they were going to be doing when they got to basic training, I could not tell you. But people had all kinds of stuff in there. And, so the, and the TIs love to like embarrass you. And, oh, you brought this. Oh, you brought that. Where do you think you were going? And all that stuff. And so you're going through, and I'm thinking, I packed so many different things. Here's what they would do. They would take the things that they knew were going to distract you from the mission and throw it away. Whatever it is that you had in here... They would throw away. And anything else that you had that wouldn't necessarily take away from the mission, you could not have until after they were done training you. Then they would give it back to you. So this was my bag. And they would take certain things out. And it's like, hey, that's not going to help you at all. That's going to be harmful to what we're doing in the mission. And and the reason why that is is because in the military, the military has a mission. Whatever branch you're in, Air Force, Marine Corps, uh, Coast Guards, Navy, Army, doesn't matter. The the military, any branch, has a specific mission, and their goal is to make sure you don't have any individual personal missions that's going to take away from their mission. So their job is to strip you down to the most bare essence of who you are, strip everything away from you, indoctrinate you with what it is that is their mission, and then give you back the things that you had. Because now that the mission is core, anything else you had, you know to use in concert with the mission. And not in opposition to the mission. And so what would happen is you would go in and you would a lot of things you just had to say goodbye to. And that was that. And certain things you could hold on to. Now this this doesn't shock us, it shouldn't shock us because honestly, when you go someplace, even if you're traveling for a little bit, we normally like to pack things that remind us of home remind me of me. I want to keep a certain sense of my identity. This makes me me. I'm from this area. I root for this team. I love this kind of, this kind of music. I, I love my family. I'm going to take these, keep these pictures. I like to keep things that remind me of me, things that are unique to my heritage, to my background, to my family. But what the military's job is, is to deprogram you so that you can be programmed, so that you can be Indoctrinated. Now, let's deal with that word indoctrinate really quickly because normally that is used almost as a pejorative. Don't indoctrinate me. You realize that everybody has to be indoctrinated on some level. You realize that when you were a child, you had to be indoctrinated. You had to be taught this is the way you dress. This is the way that you eat. This is the way you comport yourself. This is the way that you walk. This is the way that you love. This is the way that you engage relationships. Those are all indoctrination. Indoctrination isn't bad if the doctrine is right. Indoctrination is bad when the doctrine is false. Why? Because bad doctrine leads to false thinking, false feeling, which leads to false practice. And so what needs to happen, and the military gets this, is whatever it is that you're bringing into this, whatever indoctrination you've gotten from your corner of the world, we need to deprogram you of that because that is going to harm your ability to to join in this mission. That's That's what the military did for me. And spiritually, and what we're gonna see in this text, spiritually, we bring a lot of baggage into our boot camp. Spiritually, when it comes to growing and knowing what it means to be on mission with God, what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus, uh, we bring a lot of baggage, a lot of false doctrine, a lot of false thinking, a lot of false ways of of living that we've convinced ourselves are right, and they need to be changed. They need to be deprogrammed. We need an attitude adjustment. And so there are things about our natural way that we think and that we act and that we, that we operate that needs to be changed. In the same way that the military has a mission, the mission of Jesus, Jesus has a mission. But here's the thing, you can't be invited into the mission until your mindset is right. There really is no mission without the mindset. You see, if you have, a, if you have the mission, right, you have your own personal mission, but it doesn't match the mindset of Christ, you actually aren't on Jesus's mission, you're on your own. You're actually not following the mission of God, you're following your own. And likely, even if you're saying I'm following Jesus, what you really are is following kind of this this reoriented, recreated version of Jesus that looks exactly like you. This isn't a Jesus that disagrees with you, it's a Jesus that always agrees with you, which really means you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping yourself, which is why we need an attitude adjustment. So now what, what we see here is we're gonna see God knows this. God knows that, that, that we actually have to be changed because our natural orientation is not that. In the military, in the Air Force, we had three big core values that you had to know. Right? These are the things that they would drill into you. Back when I went through, it was six weeks, I think it's eight weeks now. And for, for, for several weeks, you're going through this training that basically tries to beat into you the, are the core values. The core values of the, of the Air Force at the time were uh, integrity, Service before self, and excellence in all we do, right? Things that hopefully we all would think are great things. And ultimately, the reason why they needed to keep pounding that in and say, okay, let's watch what kind of baggage you're bringing in. Because ultimately, if if integrity means to do the right thing when no one's looking, but you don't really have those kind of values that you operate by, then ultimately, you're going to do things, you're not always going to do the right thing when no one's looking, which will now impede the mission which means you don't have the skills, you don't have the requisite attributes to be a part of this mission. If you don't believe in, in uh, uh, service before self, then that means that you ultimately will serve yourself before you serve others. That's going to impede the mission, so you don't have what's necessary to be on mission. If you don't believe in excellence at all you do, you, and, 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 you, and you actually choose to work at a substandard level, do just enough to get the job done, or you work with this clumsy, temerity, and reckless abandon, you won't be trusted to follow these requisite orders that are required to fulfill the mission. Again, the attitude needs to be changed. In the same way that the military invited me to be on mission, Jesus invites us to be on mission, and he starts the mission by changing our mindset. So as we uh, walk through this series, we're going to go through this series talking about one specific thing that I think has really affected us, especially as Americans, there's an aspect of who Jesus is that I think we so easily overlook or intentionally overlook uh, because either A, our version of Christianity is just extremely uh, weak and anemic, or there are just certain things about Jesus that we just don't like because he offends our sensibilities, especially if our understanding of the gospel is is woven inextricably into our political leanings. Because there are things about Jesus that we just don't want to, we cannot abide with. I can't abide by a Jesus that holds to this because I lean to the left on this issue, but he doesn't seem to be as left as I am. Or I lean to the right on this issue, but Jesus doesn't appear to be as right as I am. So so I've got to figure out how to fix Jesus because I for sure am not gonna let him fix me. We're getting ready to walk through uh, what it is that, that Jesus does to fix our baggage. We come to the table with this baggage, some very wrong ways of thinking, some wrong ways of acting, and yet we're invited into this mission. What is God's mission? To reconcile all things to himself. Revelation 21, Jesus says, I am, I've come to do what? To make all things new. That is my mission. He's coming to reconcile everything that's been broken. He's reconciling us to himself to himself, and he's reconciling us to each other. But the question is how? How does he reconcile us to each other? Well, we're going to dig into that in Philippians 2 because ultimately what we're going to see is Jesus show, Jesus has to change our minds and change our hearts before we're ever sent out on mission. And so I'm going to read uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to walk through one big phrase that I want you to see throughout this text and that is or one word and I want you to think about how this word hits you when I say it. it's already a part of our series the word privilege how does that strike you when you hear the word privilege because I assure you the way that you interpret that word is more evident of your own baggage as opposed to what God's actual definition of the word is Matter of fact, we probably don't know what to do with it if we can't identify it or if we have the wrong attitude about it. So let's see what what Jesus does with privilege. Okay, we're gonna read uh, chapter two, verses one through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope that you, you're, I hope you can see Uh, some things here related to kind of this topic as you read this passage. Because I I honestly think that oftentimes this passage, those of you that have been in good uh, Bible studies and those of you that have come from good exegetical preaching, whenever we go, whenever you go through a text like this, you can easily just quickly jump to all the great theology or the Christology about Jesus towards the end, right? We understand this is what Jesus did for us. This is what Jesus has done. This is what it means to be united to Christ. But we actually miss one huge thing. And that is, if Jesus is reconciling us to himself, right? So he's bringing us in on mission, but we all come with this, this baggage of squalid, disgusting, putrid stuff that will, not, uh, will only hinder the mission, that won't actually help us. If, if we're bringing all that there, he's got to do a lot of unpacking before we're ready, right? He's got he's to do a lot before we're actually ready to be on mission here. If we're called to live in humility, that's what this, whole, this first part of the chapter is about. It's not about make sure that you just have the right idea of who Jesus is and make sure you've got your theology about Jesus right. It definitely is that, but it's saying there's a reason why, right? Theology should always take you somewhere. If theology leaves you in a corner, that theology is becoming an idol for you. Theology should move you to say, okay, how does this empower me to be on mission? If it just makes me feel better about having more theological information transfer at my disposal, then sadly you've turned your theology into an idol. But it actually should move us to say, what does this actually empower me to do? Does this theology help me understand now how to be on mission again? If it does, praise the Lord, give me more theology. Some of us need to be delivered from theology in some ways because the theology is actually causing us to worship some other things and not necessarily the one who is the Lord of the theology. And so so at the core, here's what humility is. And this is what we see throughout this passage, and for the next five to six weeks, this is what we're going to see throughout uh, our series on, on what it means to steward privilege. Here's what humility is. This is what the example of humility that's given here. At its core, humility is the stewarding of privilege for those who lack it. Humility is the stewarding of privilege for those who lack it. Now, the word privilege is so loaded, we tend to avoid it or we tend to have some very unbiblical responses. Here's some responses I've heard and some responses I've even had at different times. You know, I just don't like the way that word makes me feel. Can we just find a different word? I don't like the way I don't like the way it strikes me. It just, you know, every time I hear that, I'm reminded of some other things or things that people have said before. And so because of that, I just really need a different word. Can you just find another way to describe this because that word privilege just really strikes me really badly and I don't like that. Now that it's easy. We can get about that, but don't we do that with so many different things? Like I, I don't necessarily like that because I heard somebody use that word, and they used it in a way that really offended me, and so I need to just completely summarily dismiss it. You guys have heard kind of the logic fallacy, the logical fallacy in Latin is known as cum hoc, uh, ergo propter hoc, simply means this, with this, therefore, because of this. In other words, since something bad happened with this, it logically stands to reason that this is the reason why it's there. Really bad logic. But we, we, we think we're so smart. It's really bad logic. That's not a good way to live. It's not a good way to make decisions. This bad thing happened when that was present. That must be it. No. Causality is not, I mean, uh, correlation is not causality. Right? Sometimes there are people that will use a word that in its, on its own is a perfectly good word. They've abused it and misused it. Don't get mad at the word. Get mad at the fool who misused the word. Truthfully. Privilege is something that we can't uh, avoid. We can't, if the issue is not, can you use a different word? The actual issue is, can God change my attitude about the way I think about privilege? I need him to because he's called me to steward it. And so if it's making me uncomfortable, if things offend you, don't start with the person that's offending you. Start with you first. Just say, is there something in me that's actually, am I mad at something that God is angry with? This is a great way to think about your emotions is how you feel. If I'm angry or I'm hurt, am I angry about something that God is angry about? If so, then my anger is a justified anger. Yeah, my anger is not about something that God is angry about. I need a question. Okay, what's at the root of this then? Right, this is, this is the way that we can actually measure whether or not we are kind of on, the, on our own, the throne of our own hearts or whether God really is. So the question is, with when it comes to privilege, why do I jump at it? Why do I jolt? Why do I get uh, un- unsettled? I likely don't understand. And here's the other thing if you don't, if you have that reaction to privilege, you can't possibly understand what Jesus has done for you. You can't possibly understand what privilege looks like in the gospel. You can't possibly get the kind of joy that should be present when you consider the gospel because you start thinking about someone who leveraged and used their privilege for you who had none. You see, if you think that privilege is just simply, I don't like privilege because that just insinuates that I haven't worked hard for what I have, then, then ultimately you're saying that, A, privilege is only for those who just get things handed to them, which actually isn't the example in the scriptures. We're gonna see that in a minute. Privilege has nothing, it is, not, uh, it is not tied to, the litmus test for privilege is not your labor. It's not whether or not you worked hard and earned it. That has nothing to do with that. If you worked hard, praise the Lord, we're supposed to. That's how we steward ourselves. We're supposed to work hard. But ultimately, everything that we have, if we think, put it like this. I just, this just hit me right now. If you think that the things that you have are yours, then you'll never understand privilege. If you think that everything you have are on loan to you from God, then you will understand privilege. If you think that your salvation is just yours, you don't understand privilege. But if you think that salvation is a gift from the God who sovereignly chose you, elected you, and changed you to look like him, then you understand what privilege is. I didn't understand. I didn't deserve this. I did nothing to deserve this. And yet the one who had everything to lose lost it all for my sake. Now I understand privilege. Now I understand something that I need to steward. A steward actually manages things that aren't theirs. Everything that I have, this is what happens. When the gospel comes upon you and you start realizing who Jesus truly is and you start realizing who you truly are, things change. You start realizing, oh, my goodness, none of this is mine. Mm-hmm. I've, I've convinced myself my whole life that, that my, my press clippings are enough to convince me that all this stuff is mine and I can do with it what I want. But when I take the mindset of a steward, then I start realizing, Lord, you've given me these resources. You've given me these gifts. It's even because of you that I even have faith And so I have to steward all of this. This is what it means to to steward privilege. And so when this word becomes loaded for you, it's either because you don't understand the gift that's been given to you or you haven't experienced the gift at all and you're walking in a counterfeit gospel. You don't need a new word. You just need a new heart. We need an attitude adjustment. Here are the four things that you should get from this passage, and we're going to walk through them quickly because there's really just some small areas here that that, uh, really comes out. Number one, it's pretty obvious. We're going to see it here. Privilege exists. Accept it. Privilege is a real thing. You can believe all you want. The gravity doesn't exist. Jump off a building. Show me how it works out for you. It doesn't. You can't just choose not to believe in the thing and it doesn't happen. Privilege is a real thing. Number two, God's people have always been called to steward privilege. It's not a new thing. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God's people have always been called to steward privilege. We're going to walk through that in the next five weeks. Third thing, Jesus modeled stewarding privilege perfectly for us. Obviously, we weren't going to be able to do it, but Jesus comes and models perfect stewardship on our behalf. And finally, the ability to steward privilege is given to every follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, then the ability to steward correctly is yours. The mindset, the heart posture that's necessary is yours. So the uh, the ultimate issue is not just give me more information to prove to me about privilege. It's actually give me more of Jesus. Because the more of Jesus that I get, I can't get away from this privilege stewardship thing. It's all over. So some of us... uh, as we, as, we, as we look through this, I want to I ask you, when you look at, if you're like, you know, I'm just not sold, I just don't know that I believe this, I don't know that I like this word, I don't know that I like the way that you're uh, couching this, that just seems to be your opinion, I don't know if that's really in the scriptures, turn your attention ultimately to verses five and six, because these are the verses that I think really explode that idea of, well, privilege isn't really a real thing, and, and you're just trying to guilt me into this. Trust me, I've heard it. <laughs> Why does, why does, why does uh, Paul have to say this? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Let me ask you a question. Number one, why does he have to tell you? Make sure that you have this mind. You, you realize that everything that's told, that, that's given to us in the scriptures, they are there because our natural tendency is not to do them everything that's there, the things that we're challenged with, we're challenged with because our default position is to not do them. Our default position is to use whatever we have for our own benefit. So we have to be reminded because our natural, our, our natural heart doesn't want to do those things. So we have to be reminded, hey, by the way, uh, this is ultimately what this is saying. Your mindset, as strong as you are and all the battles that you've fought and the trials and the, and the obstacles that you've transcended and you're just such a warrior and a survivor and you've done all these things, your mindset still isn't good enough. The way that I think still isn't good enough. The things that I've been holding on to, still not good enough. I actually need a different mind. I actually need a different heart. I, I need the mind of Christ. So he says, make sure that you have this mind in you. Everything else that you do, That's fine and dandy. Make sure that it is in subjection to the mind of Christ. Ensure that this is uh, where where your heart is. God knows, ultimately, that we lack navigation. He knows that so often we're either a ship or a plane that has no navigation system. We just take off. And we love the fact that our engine is strong and our wings are intact and the landing gear works so well, but we have no navigation. So off course. God knows that. And so he reminds, listen, your mindset is oriented wrong. I know that you're inclined to misunderstand privilege. I know that you're inclined to not know how to steward it. And so I'm going to tell you the best way for you to understand this is to make sure that you hold on to, that you appropriate the mind of Christ. So you look at verses five and six. Privilege exists when he says, have this mind among yourself, among yourselves. Your mindset is not going to cut it, so I'm going to give you mine. Why? Because you were born needing an attitude adjustment. This idea, I'm going to give you this, um, one theologian puts it this way, and I love the way he words it, because he really does start to kind of picture and encapsulate what this phrase actually means. So here's what he says, Jesus existed in the divine condition as the unique image and glory of God, but he refused to utilize this very privileged position to exploit his privileges and assert himself in opposition to his father. The Greek word that's here uh, translated is, is, is actually this picture of holding privilege, which opens up the future possibility of advantage if only the possessor will exploit it to his own profit. That's actually what that phrase means. It, it, this, this, this picture, when he says, um, have this mind among yourselves, when he, when he says this and then right after that, talks about something, not uh, uh, equality with God, not to be grasped. to be clung to do you realize that there is no greater privilege than being god would you agree there's no better privilege than being god so 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 here jesus is right second person of the trinity the very son of god he is god in the flesh he has the ultimate privilege and yet does he hold on to his privilege in order to take care of himself or does he look upon the people and say These folks were created to look like God. I am God. They were created to look like God, and they still can't do that. They don't even have the privilege or the ability to do so. I'm going to now leverage the privilege that I have in order to make them look like me. That is stewarding privilege. If you don't believe in privilege, you don't believe the gospel. I'm sorry if this is harsh. If you don't believe in privilege, you can't possibly believe the gospel or you believe in a gospel that you add it to. You can't say that this is something that is offensive uh, or, or something that is just contrived or made up because the gospel isn't contrived or made up. Jesus modeled it perfectly. And so when we say, when we say that this, this picture of, of, actually, he continues to go on. What he says here, he says, um, In his preexistent state, Christ already had as his possession the unique dignity of his place within the Godhead. It was a vantage point from which he might have exploited his position, and by an assertion of his right, he could have seized the glory and honor of the acknowledgement of his office. At this point, he made his pre-incarnate choice. He considered the appropriation of divine honor in this way a temptation to be resisted, and chose, rather, to be proclaimed as equal with God as the Lord, by the acceptance of his destiny as the incarnate and humiliated one. Here's what this means. Jesus chose, Jesus, God, God in the flesh, all power, all knowledge, all love, all good, says, I'm going to choose to be humiliated for the ones who deserve to be humiliated. Now, for those of us that are like, well, listen, I worked hard. I don't want to do things for people that don't work hard, or I don't want to do things for people that I assume are in their position because they clearly haven't done what I've done. Man, would any of us be saved if Jesus thought like that? Aren't you glad you serve a God that doesn't wait for you to get your merit together? Aren't you glad that you serve a God that doesn't say, pull yourself up by these bootstraps? Aren't you glad that he doesn't believe in that middle-class gospel? Listen, that's not the gospel. He ultimately says, Jesus is the example of the one who leverages and gives up his privilege so that those who don't have it get it. One person puts it this way, Christ Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God uh, something to be used to his own advantage. One one commentator puts it this way: the best way to maybe understand this passage is to to put it this way. Let the same purpose inspire you as was in Christ Jesus. Y'all, what is the ultimate role? Like, it's it's our goal is not just is not just to be saved uh, saved from hell. Our our goal is not just to make sure we're not kindling at the end of the day. Our goal is not just to avoid the oven. Like we're not just saved from hell. We're actually saved to be on mission. We're saved. We say it all the time. You're not just saved from something to something. What does it mean to be on mission? This is what it is. Lord, it's a lot. We, we spend a lifetime of figuring out how to steward our privilege. That's our lifetime. Lord, where, where's my privilege right now? I don't care where you are, who you are, what has happened. There are areas in your life where you can identify areas of privilege, areas where there are things, ways that I exist or well, there are certain systems that just seem to be more beneficial in, in, in my position than other people. I don't care what it is. So if you can identify, this is why doing the whole privilege thing, I just have to put it away because it just sounds too political. I don't like it. That's a, honestly, that's a convenient trick I think the enemy uses to stop us from being fruitful. Because fruitfulness is simply this. What does it mean to be able to steward this so that the very fruit, the very attributes of God's spirit's on display? This, this, is, what, this is what we're called to. This isn't new. This is something that God has always required of his people. So privilege exists, accepted. It's not something to deny, and it's not something over which to feel guilt. So for those, if you find yourself not having the same privilege as others, you know, it's not, uh, you don't point a finger and, like, guilt people to go, you have privilege, I don't, nah, 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 nah. Like, that's not what we do. Because ultimately, the, the, the goal should be, listen, you've got God is in whatever way, in his sovereign nature, he's allowed for you to have certain privileges, so how are you stewarding that? So even if I don't have the privilege that you have, I still, as your brother in Christ, can say, hey, by the way, you have some incredible privilege right now. What are you using? How are you using that? How are you stewarding that for the kingdom? And, and you have the same for me. So if there are things for me as a privilege, just being a man in America, if you don't understand that that's privilege, you are clueless right now. So, so for me, how do I steward the privilege of being a man when there are certain systems that seem to benefit me a little bit more than they would women. How do I steward that well? We're going to walk through a lot of these. This is what it means. Actually, this is, where, this is why it so frustrates me when we talk about discipleship. Because every discipleship curriculum I've ever seen leaves this piece out. Stewardship is simply good things. Make sure that you read your Bible. Make sure you memorize enough scripture. Make sure you know good theology. Make sure that you're not looking at naughty things. Make sure that you're not saying really bad things. Make sure that you're nice. All those are wonderful. You know what it doesn't get into? Hey, what does it mean to actually steward privilege well? Because there are people in your communities that actually don't have it. How are you doing it? And it doesn't mean that it's an easy answer. It might be a really difficult conversation. It might take years. It's gonna take a lifetime. But are you wrestling with that? Or have you able to just dismiss it? If you can dismiss it, and just feel confident with our own individual kind of echo chamber that we've created for ourselves and go, okay, now I've got, got my good theology and I've got my, my good accountability group and I've got my Bible studies and, and I've got, I went to a couple of conferences and, and, and so I'm good. I've, I've got some things. I've got my music. We can't possibly understand the kingdom. Remember in John twenty twenty one, Jesus rose from the dead and he visited with his disciples, he had just died and he resurrected. And he said, he told them something. He said, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. Let, let that sit in for a minute. As the father has sent me, I'm sending you. You want to know what the mission of God is? Be sent the way Jesus was sent. How was Jesus sent? Jesus wasn't sent going, let me do everything I can to just avoid heaven or avoid hell and, and make sure that you know, I keep the, my, my holy helmet on Make sure I got my, my, my holy gated community together so that as soon as he comes, I'm ready to ride out on my horse, get my mansion in the sky. He doesn't do that. How was Jesus sent? Jesus was sent saying, let me make sure that I understand exactly the nature of my privilege so that I can steward it for the ones that don't have it. Are you sent? Are you living as one that's sent? Or are you living as one that's arrived? If we don't understand privilege, then we honestly just think I, I've arrived. It's your job to arrive. God's people have always been called to steward privilege for those who don't have it. Quickly, I'm just going to look at Zechariah, give you one quick example of where privilege has always been called to be stewarded by God's people. You realize that the reason why God's people, whether it's the, the, the Jews in the Old Testament, their responsibility was to put the very heart of God on display for all people to see. When the heart of God, when the attributes of God are on display, the Holy Spirit draws people to himself. It's not just let me, when I have enough of the right scriptures memorized and I can just quote it and just throw it like a dead noodle on the wall and if enough people hear it, that'll be it. When the attributes of the Spirit of God, when the character of God, when the mind of God, when the heart of God is on display, the Holy Spirit uses that and draws people to himself. Here's what he says in Zechariah 7, and it's a, such a, such an, a, a powerful pack, uh, passage. He says... Um, Matter of fact, I'm going to go a little bit earlier. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? I shouldn't have to say another word. Fasting and mourning. These are good holy things, right? We all have our holy spiritual disciplines, don't we? The question is, for whom are you fasting? For whom are you fasting? For whom are you mourning? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited or inhabited and prosperous with their cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. What, what is this? He's basically calling them out and saying, listen, you, you, were, you were privileged, people. You had all of these blessings that I've given you, and yet you're not taking care of those that can't protect themselves. There's always a group of people, I don't care what society you're in, there are always groups of people that cannot advocate for themselves, that don't have anyone to advocate for them, or don't, and, and so they can easily be exploited and taken advantage of. And you know whose job it was to actually care for them? God's people. It was always God's people. It was always the job of the church, especially in the New Testament, to care. Look at the group that he names here. He says, Don't, don't oppress the widow. Realized that the widow wasn't just a woman who died a lot of times, I mean, a woman whose husband died a lot of times, it was a woman whose husband deserted her, and she's gone. You realize that that how easy is it for us, depending on our levels of privilege, to just look down upon the single mother who doesn't have a husband there or a man there to raise the children and we don't feel any compunction to actually care for, not only the situation that she's in, but a lot of the systems that may have led to her being in said situation. No, we just have really quick, vituperative comments to levy against her and say things like, well, if she made better decisions, Personal responsibility is absolutely a part of being disciple. No one is saying that those things are not important. The question is, do you double down on that, yeah. without caring about the other aspects of stewarding privilege for those who don't have it? He talks about the widow. He talks about uh, the, the the sojourner. We could spend the next year talking about the sojourner, the immigrant, the one who is uh, from a foreign land and the role of God's people to care for. Are we stewarding our privilege or the poor? God's people have always been required. Now listen to this. Here's, here's what's also interesting here. I know I don't wanna go long, but I just really wanna get this piece out because this is so, this is so good. When you look at the end of Zachari- when you look at the end of this passage, what was so interesting is, is, is how we tend to respond when we're called out for our lack of stewardship of privilege. You see, I'm gonna tell you this, because this is something I've noticed now, especially here with, with some of the things that are happening in our country and things happening in our city, conversations I've had with even some folks here. When you are called out for not stewarding your privilege, for you it feels like oppression. You feel oppressed when you're called out. You realize that's a very privileged position. You get to redefine oppression and say, I, I, you're, you're oppressing me. This is reverse me. It must be nice to be able to actually have enough of the position of authority and power to say, I now deem this a new definition. This is what we do. You don't, you don't believe me? Look at what they did. Look at what the people of God, the people who were privileged originally, when God calls them out, what happens? Verse 11, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. God's been saying this all the way back. And what do we do? You call me out about privilege that I don't even believe that I have? No, 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 no. I don't want to hear you. I'm going to cover my ears. I'm going to turn into a baby. I'm going to throw a spiritual temper tantrum, which is what happens often. And it's not, I'm not, this is just me going, I've arrived. You don't have it. I have them. I've been guilty of my own spiritual temper tantrums and God has had to break me and is still continuing to break me. So do you see your temper tantrums, people? Family, do you see your temper tantrums? Do you see the areas where maybe you're holding on to something that's a bit of an idol? This is actually what we're called. This is what it means to steward privilege. Lord, I know when I'm stewarding privilege when some of my own idols start getting crushed. I know I'm stewarding privilege when I start realizing, oh my goodness, I've been indexing this so much higher than God does. Or I'm indexing this in such a way for myself and not for others. And God is actually not just saying, oh, you gotta do better. He is rebuking us. he He is calling us out. We've always been called to this. We've always, and and, and the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful thing is that, that Jesus knows that we can't do it, that we don't figure it out. This is the reason why in the Old Testament they were looking forward to the Messiah to finally come and actually model perfect stewardship for our sake so that ultimately it's not up to just us figuring it all out on our own. Jesus modeled it. He didn't just sit back and deny his privilege. He didn't ignore it. He utilized it for our sake. Look at Galatians 3.13. He says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Mm. Ultimately, what are they trying to show you? Hey, by the way, God's always called us to do this. You continue to fail at doing this. Jesus has done this on your behalf and now he's empowered you to do it the way he does. If you aren't doing it, the question is, do I know the gospel Or have I voluntarily hardened my heart against it? Second Corinthians 521, for his sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, that's the key. In Christ Jesus, let me ask you a question. You realize that you can't achieve your own righteousness on your own if you are truly united with Christ, which is what the scriptures say we are, then that means that the very mentality that Jesus has, the heart posture that Jesus has, I have. So what am I doing? How am I quenching the Spirit's fire in certain areas of my life? so that I actually can't steward well. You do realize there is an account that we have to give for how we steward. A lot of times we think about stewardship and that's great so think about, hey, make sure you don't waste money. Don't be profligate with your finances. We, 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 we do that and that's awesome. We need to, we're not supposed to waste our, our resources and our time and that. But the question is now, for what reason do we, do we steward this well? For what reason do we responsibly manage finances or do we responsibly manage our gifts or our time? our relationships. What's the reason? The reason ultimately is for those who don't have the privilege. Now, there are several ways that we deal with uh, privilege. There are several ways that we deal with it. We're gonna talk about several of them, but quickly, just a few, a few things that we need to be thinking through. Because we actually need to have this heart this heart adjustment, this, this attitude change. Because the beautiful thing is, you don't actually need to conjure up a new heart. You don't have to create a checklist to, to do it. Ultimately, what the scriptures keep reminding us is, All you have to do is to know Jesus and be known by Jesus. You know him. To know him is to love him. To love him is to love what he loves. It's to hate what he hates. So if you truly love justice and mercy the way Jesus does, then you say, how do I leverage my privilege for justice and mercy? This is why the psalmist says, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Why does he need to renew the right spirit? Because the spirit I got ain't it. The spirit I got, it for, for, pardon me for the poor grammar, but the spirit in me ain't cutting it. God needs to change it. He needs to give me a new one. Paul says in Ephesians, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, we should walk in them. What are you walking in? You're walking in stewardship. That's what it is. You're not just walking and making sure that I individually don't do bad things. You're walking in stewardship. Here are uh, uh, four ways, four quick ways to just think about stewardship, maybe for this week to be thinking through. How do I steward? Uh, Ultimately, if you are a believer, you have incredible spiritual privilege. You know the creator of the universe. You've been redeemed by the creator of the universe. You know what it is that we were created for. What does it mean to be able to live a life that images the God who made us? So now that is something. Ultimately, evangelism is a huge function of stewardship. Evangelism is a huge one. It's hard because I think for most of us, that's the one that's the gimme. We all get that. A lot of us have gotten into that like, great, that's awesome. I'm going to go and, and, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to go share the, the gospel. And the sad thing is so many things get left out. This aspect gets left out of our evangelism. But, but it's huge. People need to know the truth. The scriptures say over and over again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We actually need to open our mouths in order to actually communicate our faith. Yeah. We need to do that said it over and over again, and and I'll continue to say it. The idea, while well-intended and in theory makes sense, the idea of preach the gospel, if necessary, use your words, that's just a really, number one, he didn't say it, so look it up, you can see it. The spirit of what he meant might be true. Yes, we need to make sure that we're actually doing, but don't pit one against the other. Words are necessary, deeds are as well. Don't pit one and say, well, let me, if your works are happening at the expense of actually using your words, then great, you know, we, we said this and we'll end in a second. We said this over and over again. We've talked about the difference between a church of ghosts and a church of corpses. Y'all remember that? Church of ghosts and a church of corpses. Here's what a church of ghosts looks like. Church of ghosts, what's a ghost? A ghost is a soul with no body. For those of us that just look at evangelism, as just soul, spiritual, the gospel. Make sure people get saved. Ultimately, it's like, okay, great. If their lives are horrible, if they live in a life where, where life is not being lived the way it was meant to be lived, if there are broken systems all around and they're being exploited, as long as they got Jesus, they'll be okay. They'll go to heaven. If you th- We're selling the gospel as a form of holy escapism. If that's the case, then you believe in a church of ghosts. But if you actually, the, the other side of this Right, People who oftentimes theologically maybe a little bit more on the left of this is more like, listen, we're just going to do, we're going to show love and we're going to care for people and that's the way we're going to do it. They may not have a clue about who Jesus is. They may not have a clue about their own need for a savior, but I'm going to make sure I care about their body, their corporeal needs, the things that they need in order to live. I want to make sure I do that because at least I'm, I'm being the hands and feet. You believe in a church of corpses, a body with no soul. But see, the 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 issue of the gospel, what we're called to, how are we called to worship in spirit and in truth. We're called to be able to worship with our hands and our feet and our hearts and our mind. And so we need we need both. So evangelism, vitally important. Another area that we do in order to be able to steward well. This is gonna get right to the nitty-gritty. The way we care about our local communities, the way we vote. Actually I'm not even advocating for one side. The way that you vote needs to be influenced by your care for others. The way that we vote needs to be not just about what's gonna affect my pocketbook the best. Was gonna affect my own sensibilities. that vote actually should be influencing or be influenced by this call of stewardship. It's an incredible privilege to be a part of a country that allows us to be able to vote. And we'll talk a little bit later about certain people that systematically were not allowed to vote for a really long time. But it's an incredible privilege to say, I get to be a part of the process. If there's something that is actually harming my neighbor, my vote is very powerful and I can use that to be able to advocate for my neighbor. That's a huge part of stewardship. It's one of the reasons why, even when people get frustrated on either side, I don't even know if voting's even worth it. On a local level, it hugely is, because this is one of the primary ways in our country that it's set up to be able to advocate and care for those around us. Service, giving, the way that we serve each other. When there's a need, what it means to be able to give, and not only just give, but what it means to actually be about development right? Charity is a huge piece, but charity by itself can sometimes turn into enablement. We want charity. We also want development. Well, there are plenty of people with all kinds of gifts and talents. What does it mean to steward my talents to actually help see people develop? That's a part of it. And finally, truth-telling. There are people now, and I'm thankful for this, there are people now that are calling out and bursting certain myths that I actually think uh, allow for us to continue being horrible stewards of our privilege. There are myths that we, that we hold to, and we've kind of syncretized them into our version of Christianity as well. So it's vitally important that we, uh, in the, in, w- with the spirit of Christ, like Christ would do, hey, listen, um, it has been written this, but I say, right? Yes, we, we know this about, quote-unquote, history, but actually, here's what, I, here's what really happened. Or here's what you think is happening, here's what's really happening. You realize that this is another huge part of what it means to steward privilege. If we are able to, to get, we live now in a much more privileged time where we can get information in ways that people 50 years ago, 15 years ago couldn't get. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, okay, how do I utilize the ability in this great information age? How do I utilize this to get actual information, to actually figure out what actually is true and what isn't so that I can advocate for those who may not be able to? Jesus came to give you more than a mission. He came to give you a new mind. He came to give you more than heaven. He came to give you a new heart. Thank God for attitude adjustments. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, you, you, have, you have shown us time and time again your nature. You've shown us time and time again who you are to us and the ways in which you have uh, empowered us to look like you. And yet, Lord, much like those in the book of Zechariah, we, we fight against you. We push against you. We have our views. We we hold on to certain things, and we hold them so tightly. And honestly, Lord, we need to to repent. We need to be moved in such a way that we are so broken. And God, I thank you that you don't just leave us in a place of brokenness, but you promise to give us a new heart. You promise to continually change. We are constantly in need of you, fine-tuning, changing, renovating our heart. God, as we think about just what you've called us to be, not just here at ICON, but the church Big C, Lord, as we think about what it means to be the church in our city, in our communities, in our nation, Lord, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum, will you, will you make us uncomfortable? Will you break our hearts for the things that break yours? Will you give us wisdom on what it looks like to steward privilege? Lord, allow, give us deeper insight into our own privilege. Lord, let it be not something that we apologize for, but that we steward well. And we steward for your glory. Because ultimately, that's what you did for us. Lord, let this be the source of our greatest joy. Let this be the source of our humility. Lord, anything else we know is a false humility. If we are not moved by the humble way in which you have served us, then we in no way can serve others with humility. God, we pray that you would make that true of our hearts today. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we go to the table, this is one of the main, this is one of the reasons why we love doing this every single Sunday. Uh, Because ultimately what we want to say and what we truly believe is that we don't actually have, we don't have it in in, in and of ourselves to actually recreate our own hearts. Every single Sunday, we want to acknowledge, Lord, my heart outside of you is is a broken one. It's deficient. It's ill formed. It's not working the way it's meant to. I'm not oriented to think the things that you actually think first. I'm not oriented to feel the things that you feel first. I'm not oriented to do the things that you do first. And so, for that, every week I'm in a rhythm of repentance faith and repentance, faith and repentance. So anytime when people are wondering, why do we do this every Sunday? We do this because ultimately we need to be reminded of this rhythm, faith, and repentance over and over again. So during this time when we're doing this, be thinking, Lord, how how have I failed in stewarding privilege? The most beautiful thing about communion, the most beautiful thing about this time is this is a time where our heart is a heart of, 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 of confession, of contrition, This is the time, this may be the only time of the week where you actually can stop and go, Lord, I still see where I've missed the mark. But I'm not left in a place of shame. I also am assured that I'm still pardoned because of the privilege that you leveraged, because of the privilege that you stewarded. It is because of your privilege that I have it. If that's true for you, if that really is your story, if that's where your greatest joy is, then this table is for you. If not, if this isn't where you are and you're just like, "Eh, I just still don't know. I'm not sure that that's how I feel. I'm not sure that that's really where my greatest joy is. Then we would say that don't let these elements pass. Let this time go and let this be a time where you can actually reach out and go, Lord, is is this really you? Is this really something that should be true of my heart? Because ultimately, based on what the preacher just said and based on what I've seen in these scriptures, you're the one that gives the new heart anyhow. It's not anybody in this room that can give me a new heart. I can't, I, can't, uh, I can't clone anybody's heart in here. I, I need yours. And so let this be a time where you don't actually have to come and just uh, come down for the sake of just looking like everyone else. I'm gonna tell you right now, everybody here, if they have the right heart, realizes they're coming to partake of something that they in no way deserve on their own. This is not about, I did what I had to do, I pulled myself up, you do the same, now I'm gonna go down. That's not what this is. Everyone in this room that comes down has a heart of saying, I was pulled up. I didn't pull myself up. If this is true for you, then this table is for you. On the night that Christ was betrayed, as our volunteers come, Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks for the Passover meal. It's incredible. They're actually celebrating an event where God, again, leveraged his privilege for those who didn't have it. He leveraged his privilege and said, I am going to pass over all those that trust in the sacrifice of the lamb, that trust in the blood. And so on this very day, when Jesus is is giving the blessing for the meal, the Passover meal that these folks have been celebrating for for years and years, and he says, now, this, this bread, this bread is my body that's given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup, right? He took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, the blood that's poured out for the remission of sins, the blood that enables us to have a new heart, his heart. He says, take and drink of it. The Apostle Paul tells us this, that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, I I can't guarantee, I hope, I can't guarantee that every single Sunday we're going to make sure we get that huge part of the gospel through. I can't guarantee that every song is going to be able to communicate that aspect of the gospel, but as often as we do this, we can guarantee that we will be motivated and understanding and even moved and possibly even convicted by the truth that this is our greatest hope, that ultimately Jesus' death and resurrection is the greatest stewardship of privilege we could ever hope for. And this is, what we, this is what we stand in. We look forward to the day when he comes to complete what he started, to make everything new. If that is true for you, if that is your greatest hope, that is your greatest joy, then come, starting in the back, moving to our right, come taste and see that the Lord is indeed good.